I want to talk to you today about events and how events can be presented in a vast amount of ways. So taking newspapers as an example, I just wondered what you guys thought as to why do newspapers have different views on the same event? Like what causes that? Political bias. Certain types of newspapers will be um, either more left or more right. So they might be pro-labor or pro-conservative. So they're more likely to support the views of the conservatives, for example, if they're pro-conservative. Definitely. Anything else? Also like the audience same. So obviously you've got the political but also like certain newspapers may try to connect with a certain age bracket more than others. So taking into account like their, um, as you say, their audience, their readership is really important. I mean, an event that I just picked that you can get quite different views on is Boris winning the election. So obviously you've got kind of left and right taking very different views. You've got times in the Telegraph, they might say something like, oh, this is great for the economic stability of Britain. Um, so that's kind of high educated right wing. Um, newspaper and you've got kind of populist right-wing newspapers like the sun or the express that might be like oh boris will show the eu and then if you go to the other side of the political spectrum you've got obviously guardian kind of highbrow left they might say it's like a catastrophic result for the uk and then mirror again populist left or something like i know years of suffering for residents of the united kingdom so that's that's just one way how you can see that the same event can be interpreted in very different ways and written in different styles depending how and why it's being written and the same can actually be applied to the gospels to some extent so obviously this passage is all about jesus's baptism and it's the same essentially across the three gospels that mention it that's matthew mark and luke but there is also differences between them and it's those differences they're actually going to be focusing on today so if we look at matthew Matthew was a Jew, he was a tax collector, and he was writing for a Jewish readership. So his account of Jesus' baptism has a heavy Jewish focus, with Gentiles being more or less excluded. John the Baptist is kind of just presented as talking to the Jewish people who were there, so the religious leaders. But that's not the case in Mark. Mark was writing his as pretty much just a concise account. He just wanted to convey exactly what happened in a concise way and he actually opens his gospel in chapter one straight away with the baptism of jesus because it's like an announcement he wants to keep it short simple and concise so it was written for galilean christians in the early church and yeah he basically just wanted to get straight in there and just explain kind of what it meant before them if we look at luke yes there's lots of similarities in essence it's the same but there are some big differences which we're going to look at today so I was wondering if uh, there were any volunteers to read Luke chapter three, verses one to six. So we're going to do it in kind of two sections. We're going to look at one to six first and then seven to 38 later on. I don't I mind. Don't want me to. Oh, yeah, go Tom. <laughs> All right. So it says um, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod uh, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, 
A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Fantastic. Thank you, Tom. That was great. So yeah, in this passage, Luke, as per usual, is very attentive to history. He is pinpointing dates with precision. So uh, it reads in verse one how this happens in the 15th year of the rule of Emperor Tiberius. So this is after uh, Herod, the guy who was king at the birth of Jesus. Uh, he's dead and his lands been split up into four between his four sons. But one of uh, one of his sons was replaced with Pontius Pilate, the guy who tried Jesus. And another one was under the rule of Lysanias. And these are all real historical figures. Uh, referenced by other historians at the time, such as Josephus, who was a first century Romano-Jewish historian. And then there were two that were still ruled by Herod's children. So that in itself gives us a pretty good reference point. But Luke doesn't stop there. He gives us yet another coat hook to hang off. And that's when he talks about the time of the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So Annas was deposed by the Romans in 15 AD. And he was replaced with his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who was high priest between 18 and 36 AD. But he still ruled the Sanhedrin. And all this detail shows that Luke is a classic Greek historian. And it actually pinpoints the date to 28 AD, which concurs with the later verse in chapter 3, where it says that Jesus was about 30, because it all kind of adds up. Tiberius ruled from 14 to 37 AD. So 15 years, because they count part years as whole years, means that the 15th year of his rule is 28 AD. So that, again, is just grounding this in historical fact. The second difference between Luke's gospel and the other gospels in this instance is that Luke insists that Christianity is the true Judaism. And this is mentioned in other gospels, yes, but none do it as forcefully as Luke. And this is because Luke was trying to secure the official legal status of Christianity um, through Paul's test case. So if you remember back to the first week, talking about Theophilus and why Luke was writing this, was basically just uh, guarantees Paul's um, victory, I guess, in the court. At the time, Judaism was permitted, but other religious sects were not. And this is very important because if Christianity could get passed as like an official part of Judaism, it would mean that Christians would be able to worship freely and practice, practice their religion freely in the early church. We've got to look at how Luke does this. So the primary way that Luke does this is that, obviously looking at the start of his gospel, he opens with a Jewish temple. You've got Zechariah in the temple, he's a priest, and Mary and Zechariah, so that's the mother of Jesus and the father of John the Baptist, they both proclaim that Jesus is the hope of Israel, the kind of the culmination of everything that Israel has been wanting for the whole of the Old Testament, really. And this is also shown from last week, how when we're looking at Simeon and Anna, they were both two devout Jews and they could see who Jesus was right from the off, even as a baby. If we look at Luke 3, uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 2, where it says the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Um, this 
echoes Old Testament prophecies in a way that I've actually never really noticed before. So in 1 Kings 17.2, it says, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. In Ezekiel 1.3, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. Jonah 1.1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And that's just three of many. And this really just highlights that the arrival of Jesus is the culmination of the ancient faith of the Jews, that it's all part of God's plan since he brought them out of Egypt, you know, into the promised land, since he brought them through Babylon. This is all part of his plan. And Jesus is the culmination of this. Now we're just going to look at the next part. So that's Luke chapter three, verses seven to 19. So if anyone wants to read that. I'll do it. Thank you, Hannah. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptised by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptise you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Thank you. In this next part, obviously, we're looking at kind of John the Baptist's message. And this is where Luke's gospel begins to differ um, with who John is talking to. So Luke includes non-Jews right from the start, which would have been unconventional for the other gospel writers to do. So if we look at the concept of baptism, baptism was normally reserved for Gentiles converting to Judaism. It was kind of like a symbolic practice of washing off all their pagan filth and entering into the great and holy religion that was Judaism. But while all gospel writers include the importance that Jews be baptised, none stress it quite as prominently as Luke does. So you can see in this passage, John is saying in verse eight, uh, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So basically in this verse, John is basically turning around to the Jews and saying that all your ancestry, it means nothing. It's no use saying, oh, we have Abraham. He's our you know, great, great, great great grandfather but this all means nothing unless they repent and be baptized so this let me thinking what do you guys think that repentance is like what does it mean to you i would say it's like showing that you're sorry through sacrifice yeah it's like a response so kind of you say you're sorry and then you respond to it 
so yeah it's like like james said it's it's more than being sorry like you can be sorry for something but repentance isn't just stopping doing something that's wrong it's actually a complete u-turn it's if you've been going this way in sin you need to acknowledge that repent and go back this way it's a complete 180 and that's that's really what john is saying here he's basically saying that look like even though you're jewish even though your family heritage might link you all the way back to abraham this is all irrelevant if you're still living in sin like if you're not living for god basically and luke adds on to this that it's not just words it's a complete lifestyle change how we need to live differently and be seen differently in the later verses luke talks about how all people will see god's salvation and this means that the god who had been predominantly reserved for israel during the old testament was now available to everyone to the gentiles all over the world and that means for you it means for me for everyone like god is available and he wants a relationship with us which is great news because we're all welcomed into god's perfect and loving salvation if we make that step to repent and believe and it's quite interesting the repentance comes first in repent and be baptized it's not saying be baptized and then repent like you've got to make that decision to repent before you are baptized the fourth difference that we see in luke's gospel is that he applies the gospel in a roman context so that would mean that for theophilus for example reading this he would actually be able to apply this to his own life so in verses 10 to 14 he actually tangibly spells out what it means for each of his roman readership so if you look at verse 11 he says anyone who has two shirts share with the one who has none and anyone who has food should do the same which even now in the 21st century it's a defining concept how you know those who are better off the rich they should share with the poor and then again verse 13 he says don't collect any more than you're required to so don't cheat people be honest be straightforward don't be out for yourself but be out for god and then again further advice in verse 14 don't abuse your authority just be content with what you have and be humble basically use your position as well theophilus would have taken this as quite a massive comfort really because he probably would have been quite annoyed by all the kind of like petty crimes that would have been going on but Luke is saying, actually, no, Christianity is not about that. It's not about starting a political rebellion to subvert authority. And that's that's shown later on in Jesus's life in Luke 20, 25, when the religious leaders are trying to catch Jesus out. They're basically trying to find a clause on which to um, arrest him. And they're like, you know, should we pay taxes? And Jesus asks them and he's like, show me a denarii, a Roman coin and on it it has caesar's face so he's like give back to caesar what is caesar's and to god what is god's and quite interesting actually i was watching a church service this morning and this passage came up and it opened my eyes to a completely new way of looking at this because for ages i've just kind of thought okay that means you you pay your taxes to the ruling authority the government but then you know you also give your you also give your bit to the church to god but it actually means so much more than that if you look at a coin particular british 50p it's got queen elizabeth's head stamped on and obviously like that is stamped with her image 
But when we look in the mirror and we see ourselves, what are we stamped with? Well, we're stamped with the image of God. So that means that we should give what is due to authority, but we should give ourselves completely to God because we're made in his image. We are stamped with his stamp, if you like. Yeah, so after that slight little tangent, basically Jesus isn't coming to try and start a political rebellion. He's not bringing insurrection or revolt. He is just coming to love his enemies and ultimately to lay down his life for them in the later parts of the book. Now, the fifth way in which this account from Luke differs to the other Gospels is that Luke takes great time in showing that Jesus is Adam's greater son. Romans 5.19, for just as through disobedience of one man, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. So, you know, I'm sure you can all probably remember religious education lessons, learning about Adam and Eve or Sunday school, how Eve ate the fruit, Adam ate the fruit, and they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. What Luke's saying, and Paul is later saying in Romans, is that Jesus came to restore that, to save us from that, because obviously salvation means to save. And this is echoed again in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, so all in Christ will be made alive. So Jesus came to restore what was lost and bring salvation to everyone, as mentioned earlier, not just to Jews with, quote, perfect family heritage, but to everyone. And that when he lived, he lived a perfect life that we should have lived. And he died the death that was meant for us. He took the punishment that we were due. And through this, we are saved, providing we repent and believe. Through his death, we can be welcomed into the assurance of an eternal life with God. But this does come at a cost. When we look at Luke chapter three, you can see John is speaking this message. He's speaking openly. He is preaching the good news of Jesus. He's preaching the gospel. And you can see in verses 19 to 20, Herod didn't like that very much. He locked him up. And actually we find later on he has him killed. But that is the cost that we, you know, we are called to take up our cross and follow him. But, you know, that's not saying that everyone's going to get locked up or put in prison because we have the privilege of living in a free country where we can practice whatever we want to. But obviously that is the case for people all over the world. But Jesus says once, basically, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul and that's that's basically what it is we're not putting our lot in with the world which is unstable corrupt deceitful but we're putting our lot in with god the perfect creator who you know who made the universe and the earth and each one of us yeah so that's the kind of first part of luke chapter three and then it continues on to talk about jesus's baptism himself and looking at his genealogy. So I'm not going to read you the whole genealogy, but I will just read briefly from 21 to 23. The baptism and genealogy of Jesus. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. 
so that's looking at Jesus' baptism. So you can kind of imagine the scene. You've got Jesus in a river. He's being baptized by John. There's probably crowds of people watching him. And suddenly the heavens just split open and there's a dove or what looks like a dove just coming down and like resting near Jesus. And then you hear from the sky, God speaking, saying, look, this is my son. And this would have been unprecedented at that time, because prior to this, there had been 400 years of silence. So the gap between Old Testament and New Testament, about 400 years, and Israel hadn't heard anything from God that's why in verse 15, everyone's like, oh, is John the Messiah? Because this is the like first person that they've seen speak with power and authority and just filled with the spirit. So that's kind of why they were questioning that. And then the verse continues and it's looking at Jesus' genealogy. And I must confess, during previous times, I have just skipped over this because it seems just like a long list of names. But actually, if you if you dig into it, it's quite fascinating really because Jesus's lineage includes both kingship and priesthood he has past relatives who were priests and also kings so if we take kingship first this shows that Jesus is the true ruler he's descended directly from David uh, as seen in verse 31 um and that you know he's the righteous ruler of Israel so that kind of links back to 2 Samuel 7 16 where Samuel says one of your descendants will always be on the throne and Isaiah 11 1 talking about a shoot that will come up from the stump of Jesse so that was David's dad he will basically bring salvation to all people all nations yeah just to everyone really and then if we look at priesthood I just wondered what do you guys think the role of priests was back in the old testament and during this time of writing like what what did they do any thoughts they like did they like lead the church i don't really know yeah yes they, they were um a leading figure especially if you go back to the old testament their primary function was to present sacrifices for the atonement of the sins of the people so if you look back to kind of genesis exodus leviticus you have the whole like constructing of the temple you have the tent of the tabernacle and only the priest so everyone could go in like the big temple but then there was a little bit which was only for the high priest one day a year where they could go in and that was where god's presence resided for the holy of holies and no one else could present the sacrifices for the atonement of people's sins except the priest and this is why it's essential that that Jesus is descended from priesthood because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. You know, as seen in Romans 4.14, Paul writes, therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the son of God, and then he continues in Romans 5.1, every high priest selected from among the people and appointed to represent the people in all matters related to God to offer sacrifices for sins. So, Looking back at Jesus as the perfect sacrifice, you know, he lived a perfect life. And it was because of that that he was able to die in our place as the Lamb of God. John 1 29, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that pretty much sums it up nicely. He came to earth, the Almighty God became human and lived a perfect life, suffered and died just in order to 
have a relationship with us so that we might live to take away our sin. It says in Psalm 103 verse 12 that our sin is taken as far away from us as the east is from the west. So no matter what's happened, God loves you and all you have to do is just repent and believe because Jesus has done the hard work. You know, he he came to earth. He died for our sins after living a perfect life. And because of that, we are able to take confidence kind of in that. Also, if we look back through Jesus's genealogy, there's probably some names in there that you recognize. You know, some of these were great men, but some of them not so much. For example, his family history wasn't perfect. Uh, it wasn't through the firstborn. It didn't go like, okay, eldest to eldest. So if we look at verse 31, uh, where it says, the son of Nathan, the son of David. So Nathan was actually David's third son with Bathsheba. And I mean, some of you may know the story of David of Bathsheba. Basically, David was king and he was up on his roof terrace one day, probably enjoying the evening sun. And he looked across to a roof terrace next to him and he saw this woman bathing on the roof and he was like, kind of fancy her. So he called for her husband and sent her husband into the front line of battle. So he effectively had her husband killed so that he could marry her, which, you know, not exactly a good thing to do. Continuing on from this, you've got Jacob, obviously story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob tricked his father, Isaac, into giving him the blessing. So he lied to his father. And then even Abraham, you know, Abraham's often seen as this great father figure for Israel, but he lied to save his own life in Egypt. And then you're looking at Noah, you know, the guy who built the ark, marched in the animals two by two. He got drunk. So basically, Luke includes this to show that one, Jesus is the rightful king. Two, he is the perfect high priest. And three, to show that God can use anyone that these people they were they were human at the end of the day we're all human and we are far from perfect but the fact is that god can use each of us in a perfect way because he is perfect so yeah just really take confidence in that that you know no matter what no matter what's going on no matter what's happened in your past that God can use you and he can use you in ways that you could never even imagine. Yes, that's all from me this evening. But no, I hope that's been useful. But yeah, thanks for coming along, guys. Thank you.